HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Good afternoon. What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights is playing now on your podcast for your listening pleasure. My name is Katie Kiefer, and today I have the very great privilege of speaking with Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President. And for those of you who may not be familiar with Mr. Adams, uh, for the past three decades, uh, Eric Adams has served the residents of Brooklyn as Borough President uh, state senator, police officer, and coalition builder. In November of 2017, he was re-elected for a second term to represent all of Brooklyn as borough president. Born in Brownsville and educated in the city's public school system, Eric is committed to ensuring Brooklyn's bright future by helping each and every Brooklynite reach his or her full potential. Eric has worked to make the popularity of Brooklyn's brand translate into prosperity for the over 2.6 million Brooklynites that call the borough home. He is a big believer in the power of connections, of bringing together people in need of services with resources that have long existed but have been underutilized. And as a legislator, Eric's record in the New York State Senate was one that underscored his strong commitment to the rights of those from every walk of life, including protecting the right to privacy, supporting marriage equality, defending a woman's right to choose, as well as fighting for students' rights, workers' rights, and animal rights. His work has also involved efforts to prevent racial profiling, gender discrimination, domestic violence, and elder abuse. Your halo is shining all the way from Brooklyn, <laughs> Eric Adams. You are obviously a rock star. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I look forward to a good conversation. Oh, I think you're going to find that here. Absolutely. I'm, I've am i been doing this for 10 years and my conversation has gotten commensurately better with practice, obviously. So now the reason you your office reached out to me was because you have a very special message about how diet can have an effect on your life. And you yourself reversed the course of diabetes by adopting a whole food plant-based diet. Diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and hypertension are just a few of the chronic conditions that arise from a poor diet, as we have all learned in the last decade or so. So my first question is, how are you able, as a borough president, to advocate for better food in Brooklyn? Uh, great question. Uh, the uh, Brooklyn is one of the five municipalities uh, that uh, makes up New York City, Brooklyn being the largest with 2.6 million 
undocumented people and 47% of the people here speak a language other than English at home. Uh, and because we're so large, the way goes Brooklyn, goes New York, and oftentimes what happens in New York really cascades throughout the entire country, if not the globe. And when we started this journey about four years ago, this was a pre-coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we got into the space of healthy food, and in the process, we have been able to really uh, change some city policies and a re-examination of how we feed people. It is really ironic that as we talk about pre-existing conditions, that we don't understand that for the most part, uh, they are health issues that are number one, preventable, but number two, reversible. And that is the conversation we have been having for the last four years. Fantastic. So as we all know, or as many of us know, and I know you do, a major contributor to uh, you know poor food uh, access is a lack of full service grocery stores in every neighborhood. So as a borough president, your job is to oversee land usage allocations. How have you been able to encourage more development in full service groceries? By making sure whenever you want to do a new development, we include it uh, when it's appropriate, we include the calls to have a full service uh, grocery store where we can have healthy, fresh fruits and vegetables. We have also advocated for things like uh, farmers markets and going into those areas where traditionally you did not have farmers markets that were located. And we wanted to change the concept of people believing uh, that of some of the economically challenging communities did not want fresh fruits and vegetables. That is so far from the truth. And we've been able to uh, get the local developers who are building in the city and, and the borough to also include full service grocery stores in their developmental plans. Right. Now, let me ask you this, you know, grocery stores, uh, like uh, it's hard. I mean, independents are pretty few and far between. And so most of the time people end up having to go with a chain. How do you persuade a large chain that it's going to be profitable for them to move into a low income neighborhood? I mean, isn't that traditionally why uh, the areas are so underserved? Is it that, that grocery store chains like ShopRite or, or Stop and Shop don't see profitability in neighborhoods with uh, lower incomes. How, how do you address that? And, and part of the problem is it's almost like if you build it, they will come. Uh, many grocery stores, particularly some of our large chains, are saying that the food that you're asking us to serve is not what people are ask, asking us to have on our shelves. And so we cannot continue to, to have this disjointed uh, system of, of food and how we feed communities. It, it's, a, it's a closed system and we need to treat it as such. Meaning in some cases, uh, we should supplement uh, some of the dollars of putting fresh fruits and vegetables on shelves. We should have a coordination with our local schools and do local purchasing so that uh -huh. uh, people will purchase locally um, in our schools. Uh, we should create partnerships 
without schools and rooftops, as we have done here in Brooklyn, to encourage rooftop gardens where young people can grow enough produce to actually supply uh, some of the local stores in their community, particularly the local small stores that we call bodegas, uh, trying to find fresh vegetables in these corner stores, extremely challenging uh, yeah. project that we are producing in one of our public housing that we call NYCHA, where we are spending uh, over $14 million on building a two-story greenhouse so they can supply vegetables and job training to the residents in that area. And I think part of what we must look at is this entire concept of urban farming. There's, there's going to be a large number of jobs in the future around urban farming. Uh, the skills are going to be needed and showing people how to grow locally and produce enough fresh vegetables and fruits is something that can help with the crises that they're facing in their community. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I love that you're into the urban agriculture piece of this, but you know, there's a lot of questions in my mind about, because I happen to know, uh, you know, like um, Brooklyn Grange and um, Eagle Top Roof Farm or whatever that one was called and Gotham Greens. I mean, they're all pretty pricey. And so when I think about, um, you know, encouraging urban farming like that, it's actually a pretty expensive um, model, actually. And I'm wondering how you can keep it affordable for residents that may need to be able to spend your EBT dollars, you know, their food, their uh, food stamp dollars at an urban farm. Can you organize, can that be part of your model? And would you be able to export that model to other cities? It's so, it's so important because you're right. Uh, when you look at the rooftop garden that's on top of Whole Foods and some of the other locations, uh, they are considered prices for the inner city. And we should, there are two levels that I believe we must approach this. Uh, one, government must start recognizing that either we pay now or we pay later. And if we understand how much quality food impacts uh, the unsustainable health care crisis that we are facing even before coronavirus, then yes. we will start offsetting some of the costs. Uh, we have something in the city uh, where we give uh, prescriptions to uh, people who are suffering from chronic diseases where they can use the prescriptions not for just medicine, but you can go in to use it to purchase uh, food and other healthy food. That's something that I think we should expand. We should look at places like East New York Farms and some of the other farms that are in Harlem and Brooklyn, uh, the Bronx Green Machine. Yep. They have shown us that we can produce uh, large quantities of vegetables uh, on the cheap. We don't have to have uh, the elaborate Rolls-Royce Rolls concept. Uh, <laughs> you could have a smaller, more profitable economical process that can produce the same quality food, but also government should play a major role of saying, we're going to use the production to start feeding our hospitals, our correctional facilities, our schools, uh, all mm -hmm. of the places that government is feeding people. We need to shift our model and start focusing on giving quality, healthy, nutritional food, and that will create the industry to keep the prices down. Right, right.
Very smart. I love this. So one more question about that, uh, about sort of the, the urban farming thing, and then we're going to take a quick break. But one of the things that I, in the 10 years that I've been doing this podcast, the thing that always comes up again and again when it comes to getting healthy fruits and vegetables, whether it's from the farm into the city or whether it's from this, you know, a rooftop farm out into the population is production and distribution facilities. And that seems to be the biggest hurdle to overcome in many ways, because you can grow all the fresh vegetables you want, but if you can't get them out to the markets, to the schools, to the institutions, you know, you, you really, you're not, you're not serving. So how, how can you encourage uh, taxpayers or the government or whoever you think of private investment to invest in production facilities, you know, where they get cleaned and packed and then distribution, i.e. in terms of trucks or uh, other delivery methods. What, what can you do for that? Well, number one, the more local we make the process, uh, the smaller number of trucks and vehicles we would need on the road. And part of the goal is to make this process uh, as local as possible. Uh, we cannot make more land in the city of New York we have really developed at a rate that is astonishing to anyone, yet we do have a substantial amount of rooftop space. Yeah. I am a firm believer that every school uh, should develop their rooftops into gardens uh, to feed not only uh, the students that are in the school, uh, but also uh, give free produce and vegetables uh, to the families. A greenhouse is a great investment or classroom space in the building. Second, one of the uh, big challenges we are facing uh, post-coronavirus is employment. Uh, it is time yeah. to create an entire industry around how New Yorkers uh, feed themselves in a healthy fashion. So this is a real win-win. Let's create new jobs that would include transportation, that would include last mile delivery, uh, that would include having uh, locations where we would deliver food, uh, uh, teach everything from uh, skills on truck driving to packaging to creating these entire industries, looking at our nitrate developments, some of the community centers, uh, repairing them, building them out, turning them into greenhouses. I, I have seen some excellent examples of this being done to provide local food to the stores in the area and increase and create jobs at the same time. And so we don't have to only travel upstate to get these uh, vegetables for the most part. We can do it locally. That would take the vehicles off the road, that would create, create employment and increase employment. And these fields that many of the food desert, food swamps, food apartheid locations have historically been denied healthy uh, food and access to quality nutritional food. Right. No question about that, sir. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Borough Pre Brooklyn Borough President uh, Eric Adams. Uh, stay tuned uh, for more. And uh, we have other interesting things to debate about changing the food system in the New York State area or the New York City area. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, 
The wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper, if you're just tuning in. And my guest today is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Um, And we're talking about, uh, you know, changing the food system model in Brooklyn, particularly to uh, include underserved communities where access to fresh fruits and vegetables has been uh, a major problem for decades, Um, partly due to real estate costs, right? And then also just because it's been hard to get uh, grocery stores to buy into those areas. Uh, But there's other factors at play here too. And so one of the things that I thought about when I was thinking about, um, you know, this whole interview, Eric, was what about nutritional education for families? Do you have programs in mind or do you have programs in place already that will address the knowledge gap about how to read labels or what's good for you or how much, you know, how many uh, servings of fruit and vegetables do you need per day? Kind of like stuff that a lot of people, you know, in all walks of life really don't pay that much attention to and may not have any information on. How do you address that? That has been one of our primary focus areas, our school system. When you look at a place like Brooklyn, as I indicated, we have an extreme level of immigrant groups and children who are living either in poverty or living and really uh, in, in housing, uh, uh, not housing uh, where they actually, uh, with their families, they're living in temporary housing. Over 100,000 children are living in temporary housing at this time in our school system. And you have many of our school uh, children who are not receiving the basic information. And so what we have attempted to do and we're continuing to do is to rethink of the relationship between food, nutrition, and education. Yeah. We have a collective audience with our children are in school. We are teaching them the power of food through our Meatless Mondays programming, yeah. uh, th- through our greenhouses, uh, through using hydroponics, how to grow food. We have one program where a child walked up to me after installing a hydroponic lab and said, I never had a salad before. And this was a high school student. And so when you start to think that for the most part, our city agencies, they have focused on on caloric consumption and not nutrition. We just put out a report uh, by the new food czar where she talked about feeding uh, New York City and her entire report uh, was absence of talking about nutrition, uh, talking about vegetables, and really just talk about how do we give people calories. And people have not embraced the understanding that you could have a caloric 
consumption and have the number of calories, but your body could be starving from the nutrition. And that's what leads to the chronic diseases that we're facing. So the education must start with our governmental agencies. It must start with our Department of Health. Uh, surprisingly, uh, they have not really embraced <laughs> the importance of quality food. And so we believe that education is important. And that is what we have been on the forefront in doing. Well, that's, that's you know, that's a very scary uh, report you just mentioned by the so-called food czar, where all they talk about is how much, how many calories per meal. So then they're talking about, say, I mean, just to be a hypothetical here. So if they're talking about a school lunch program, they're talking about each child must have X number of calories, but they don't specify whether it's calories from eating a bag of Doritos or calories from eating an apple. I mean, it really? They're like that. It's that useless a report. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And That's shocking. And we paid for it, no less. Right. right? We we have to we have to unlearn what we learned so that we can learn how to feed people correctly. If we don't yeah. unlearn uh, the historical beliefs around food, the Things like it's important to have uh, meat at the center of our uh, diet. It's important to have uh, milk to build strong bones. Uh, You know, all of these myths need to be reconstructed so that we can start looking at the point in conversation around nutrition and having the right micro units and having a well-balanced nutritional uh, meal. But too many people in policy-making positions, they don't believe that. And so we need to bring in uh, experts to talk about how the body operates and the importance of nutrition so we can change what they believe. And that is what we have been successful in doing. We've been holding a series of conversations with men and women who are who are in this space of proper, balanced nutrition, and we are attempting to educate those policymakers. Right. That sounds great. So um, another thing that uh, <laughs> that crossed my mind here is, is when you're talking about re-educating people, um, you're not just re-educating the, you know, the powers that be who make up the rules or whatever, uh, or who make up, say, the school lunch programs, but you also have to really radically change people's uh, habits of their own. And that's a really heavy lift. I mean, for somebody who is accustomed to say eating at McDonald's or Kentucky Fried and they and they really like it and and of course those foods are so heavily engineered to make you like it that you almost can't really like anything else in a way i mean it's it's a scientific fact that you know they McDonald's and all the other packaged foods uh, companies, they have laboratories full of people who are engineering exactly how to tickle certain parts of your brain to make you want to eat more or which will mask your satiety instinct or something like that. So how do you explain to a population that's very used to eating poorly um, that eating better is not only better for them, but it's also not that hard? 
Because, I mean, let's remember, a lot of people are working two jobs. They don't have time to collect, you know, prepare meals. They don't maybe necessarily even have uh, the facilities to prepare a, a separate meal for themselves, especially people who live in shelters or or in single room occupancy hotels. Like, there's that whole sector of the population that really needs the help, but really doesn't, may not have the wherewithal either from the infrastructure or just from what they like to eat to make those changes. How, you know, where is that education coming from? What you are saying is so important because far too often those of us who have seen the light of healthy food, we try to meet people where we are and not meet them where they are and take them where they ought to be. And part of what we need to do and must do is look at all of the barriers that prevent people from having a healthy, balanced lifestyle, Uh, economics, uh, uh, ability to prepare food, uh, how to shop, uh, the lack of information, how to read labels, uh, how to walk into supermarkets and grocery stores that are in their communities and still find a balanced food. That is what we're doing. We're doing the one-on-one to healthy eating and disease reversal. We're holding uh, forums every three months at Borough Hall where we talk about different ways of reversing diseases. We're showing people how to shop in their corner stores because even in the rough of a grocery store in in an impoverished area, there are diamonds there, like dry beans, dry lentils. Uh, We show them instead of using this, use that. They get the salty taste by combining lemon and and vinegar. We're showing them different spices. We get, we're giving them different spices to show them the power of spices. Instead of holding on to salt and pepper as your primary spice, we're showing the power of ginger and nutmeg and cinnamon and turmeric. And so right. we are taking people in a slow evolutionary level on how to look at food differently. And slowly people are starting to see that they can control not only what they eat, but how they feel. And then we're finding pathways the right time because people don't eat what they eat merely because of the taste. They eat it because of the relationship culturally they have with their food. I used to eat chocolate cake whenever I was sad because that's what my dad used to give me when I had a bad softball or bad little league game. And so we need to redefine those relationships and show people the reason your son is missing school because of asthma is because of the food he's eating. If he's a type two diabetic, the reason he's having um, serious issues with his diabetes is because of what he's eating. So it's about making those connections and relationships and understanding understanding the mental aspect of food consumption. Yeah, yeah, so important. Now, to take this, uh, to sort of pull this back a little bit from the from the micro to the macro, um, one of the things that I am sure you remember when uh, Mayor Bloomberg tried to impose a soda tax, and the soda tax ran into all kinds of pushback 
but primarily pushback from the American Beverage Association and the Grocery Manufacturers Association. Both of them, you know, lobbied intensely to keep him from enacting the soda tax, which would have been, in my opinion, a very successful public health uh, venture. I mean, I don't, you know, nanny state be damned. People need to stop drinking sugary beverages, period. And because they're so cheap, of course, you know, sometimes it's cheaper than water, right? So, how do you, how would you, or how do you as borough president, how can you marshal resources that will push back against these very powerful lobbies? And I don't just mean the ABA and the, and the, and the grocery manufacturers or the meat lobby lobbies heavily to have ground beef and meat in every school meal. You know, like these are all very, very wealthy, powerful organizations that do their best to promote their own agenda over public health. How, how, how is it possible to, to sort of push back against that successfully, especially when it comes for, to legislation. And for the most part, part they've hi- they've hijacked our families and our health, and they, they have placed profit over public health. Absolutely. And really, our lawmakers should be ashamed of what they have done to our families. And some of that is out of lack of education of what food is doing to us, and others is out of just straight greed. Yep. Uh, but I think you need a ground up movement. We need uh, the we need to cut off the demand and that will change the supply. Uh, I remember many years uh, walking into meetings and all you would see is a Coca-Cola uh, display, uh, Coca-Cola for beverage, uh, sugary drinks for beverage. Now I walk into meetings and I see the same company producing large quantities of different types of water. And so who would have thought that we can turn around how people think about just what they eat? I think when the demand uh, becomes large enough, it would change the supply chain. And that is why it's important that we educate people from the ground up and say, when you hold those meetings, when you hold those gatherings that we don't want on our tables, we don't want in our schools, in our vending machines, we don't want in our hospitals, the McDonald's, the Coca-Colas, the sugar uh, latent drinks. I think that is what is going to change the supply once we change the demand. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, up to a point, I will say. I'm a little bit... I think that's a very heavy lift, but I I applaud your optimism. Okay, if you have time for one more question, um, Eric, I wanted to ask you this. You know, you have outlined some very, very ambitious goals here, um, which I think are long overdue, and I fully support them, and I, I really wish you all the best success with them. But how, what can we do collectively uh, to get government, whether state or federal, to buy in how do we get like, you know, Republicans, for example, to see the connection between paying for good, healthy food in low income communities and better public health outcomes that mean less money that we spend on medical costs uh, nationwide? You know, those are the kinds of equations that don't seem to be penetrating uh you know, sort of state and federal legislators. And I'm wondering how to get that message across to them better. What do you think about that? I, I think our life journey is an accumulation of incidents to take us to a, per, a place where we can find our purpose. And I think, I think that's what my life journey has become. 
Uh, starting out in politics as a state senator after leaving the police department and now as the ball president, uh, I am able to reflect on the legislative arm, but then the personal experience of reversing my diabetes after experiencing blindness and nerve damage that they stated would lead to permanent blindness and possibly permanent limb amputation, as well as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and all of the other byproducts of diabetes. And when I was able to reverse that, that it moved from a professional journey to a personal journey. And I know if I was able to change a really uh, embedded American diet, uh, I believe that everyone would do the same if you're giving them the right information. And what I've learned about politics is that there's nothing more important uh, than an organized movement because politicians depend on votes. And if we organize on a grassroots level, locally, starting with our uh, state legislators and then move on to our congressional delegation, the movement is going to change. Just as we saw in some of the gun legislation that changed in this country after a series of assaults on high schools, uh, just as we are seeing now around the environmental fight, I think that you too and we can also organize a serious health campaign to show that we deserve and demand healthy foods in every area that government is paying for those foods from our schools to our senior centers to our uh, child protected custody location and even to our correctional facilities absolutely Uh, our tax dollars should go to feed people healthy yeah I couldn't agree with you more. Well, I won't keep any more of your time today, but I want to thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope you'll come back. I've really enjoyed it. And I'll stay in touch with your assistant, Rachel. And uh, anytime you want to come back on the show, please let me know. I'd be delighted to have you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Take care. Okay, sir. Take care now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 